there's kind of one rule of life that's stronger than any other rule of life. I think it, it is in uh, the Bible of every religion, and it's part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is never follow Barack Obama. <laughs> So I'm, I'm genuinely touched. And I, I kind of want to tell you a story from uh, the White House, which is that there was one uh, period where we were trying to formulate our philosophy of regulation uh, in the uh, period in which we'd been doing things, but the philosophy had not been concretized. And the question was whether to state one and to be clear on it. And some of the president's advisors thought, there's no reason to do that, that if you start to create uh, an account of what your theory of the case is, uh, you'll create political uh, problems and basically just very quietly do good things. Uh, and that was something that was widely shared by the president's top advisors. And in the meeting, I kind of quietly raised the option of giving a, a theory of what government was for. And uh, I thought, you know, if I was kicked out of the room, that would not be surprising. Uh, but the president said, I want to do that. And he was the only one in the room, with the partial exception of yours truly, who thought we should do that, and we did it. And the original idea, uh, in the most original idea, I think, in the theory is to emphasize human dignity. And I know that here there is a Dignity Day, uh, courtesy of the Crown Prince, I've learned, and uh, that's something that um, uh, the, the, the words aren't quite clear, but something like, there must be a Norwegian word for being proud of uh, that's a little gentler than proud, a little more like gratified, but that, that, that's the right word for that. Okay, thank you, Mr. President. Is he still president, by the way? <laughs> I, I, I read he wasn't, but I thought that was a dream. <laughs> or maybe not a good dream. Okay, it's, uh, it's far too little to say that I am uh, humbled to have been awarded the Holberg Prize for 2018. Uh, one reason that I feel humbled is that the prize covers such a large territory, uh, arts and humanities, social science, law, and theology. Um, I'm lucky enough to have studied uh, in one way or another all of those fields, and I've learned from them. My topic is one that has preoccupied lawyers for sure, but also artists, poets, and novelists, psychologists and anthropologists and philosophers, neuroscientists and diplomats, uh, doctors and economists, the relationship between freedom of choice and human well-being. I'm going to make three claims. Uh, the first and the simplest is that freedom requires navigability. I wish there were a lovelier word for navigability, but that is the first claim, by which I mean an ability to get to your preferred destination. Theorists of freedom, including John Stuart Mill and John Locke, and in his way, Karl Marx and uh, Friedrich Hayek have paid too little attention, I suggest, to the problem of navigability, writ very large. 
The second claim is that freedom requires self-control, an ability to focus on the future, not just the moment. I'm going to make that idea, which as stated is very simple and straightforward, a little more complicated. The idea of self-control raises some puzzles and a secret to the relationship between freedom and well-being, I suggest, involves coming to terms with those puzzles. The third claim is that our free choices can lead us in all sorts of different directions depending on society's architecture. So the idea is that one architecture or another can lead us freely to choose all sorts of different things. That idea is the least simple of the three, and so I'm going to spend uh, some time on it. I have two epigraphs for you. Uh, the first uh, should be familiar. If none of you has heard this before, uh, let's talk after. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The second apograph is from another text on the subject of freedom, A.S. Byatt's Possession, a text that says the following after a fateful choice, and yes, it involved a romance. In the morning, the whole world had a strange new smell. It was the smell of the aftermath, a green smell, a smell of shredded leaves and oozing resin, of crushed wood and splashed sap, a tart smell which bore some relation to the smell of bitten apples. It was the smell of death and destruction, and it smelled fresh and lively and hopeful. Bayat is speaking of a free choice and a kind of fall, and her tale overlaps, that's clear, isn't it, with that of Genesis. But Bayat's account is much more upbeat. Let us be clear, every human being is blessed to experience that smell. In its broadest form, my question is whether and when people's free choices will make their lives go better. The political tradition that Norway and the United States and much of the world lives under gives a simple answer to that question, yes, and usually. Artists novela, and novelists, psychologists and theologians insist that that answer is too simple. In brief, they urge, people might not want to know how to get where they want to go. Like Eve, they can be tempted. Sometimes people lack self-control. Sometimes their choices are not, in the deepest sense, their own. They are deceived, deprived, or manipulated. Sometimes their preferences are a product of injustice or deprivation. Sometimes they just blunder, which means that their lives go worse. All over the world, people suffer because life is not navigable. Those who are facing hardship poverty, mental illness, chronic pain, are often unable to solve the problem of navigability. They deserve help. 
Let's begin with some orientation. To understand freedom, I'm going to have a fair bit to say about something that's been mentioned, which is nudges and nudging. A nudge, all you need to know for present purposes, is an intervention that preserves freedom of choice, but that also steers people in certain directions. In daily life, a GPS device, as mentioned, is an example of a nudge. You can ignore its advice if you don't like it, if you want to go a scenic route, or if you want to linger, or if you think it doesn't know what it's talking about, you can ignore it. But it helps you to find the right route to your destination. Other nudges include text messages telling people that a bill is due or that a doctor's appointment is scheduled for the next day, automatic enrollment in clean energy or in pension plans, the default settings on your computer and your cell phones. You all have computers and cell phones, yes? Good. I'm glad to say I, none of you seems to be looking at your cell phone. Uh, so I didn't know the answer to whether you actually had them. Uh, the programs that exist all over the world for automatic payment of mortgages and credit cards. We should distinguish nudges from mandates and bans and incentives in the sense that nudges maximally preserve freedom of choice. With respect to the world's problems, their use remains in preliminary stages. We're going to see a lot more in the future. Here is a tale from the novelist David Foster Wallace. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young sw fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? This is a story about choice architecture. That is the background against which our decisions are made. Whether or not we notice it, choice architecture is there, it is inevitable, and it affects us. It is the equivalent of water. Weather is itself a form of choice architecture, and thank you weather authorities for pleasing choice architecture these days. On snowy days, people are especially likely to buy cars with four-wheel drive, which they promptly return to the dealer because they don't want them. Human beings can't live without some kind of weather. Nature nudges. Human beings can't wish choice architecture away. Any menu places options at various locations. Television stations are assigned different numbers, and strikingly, even now, with hundreds of options, the number matters even when the costs of switching are zero. People tend to choose stations with lower numbers. Any website has a design which will affect what and whether people choose. The goal of nudging is to increase the likelihood that people's free choices will improve their welfare, and thus to link tightly freedom of choice with well-being. A central goal is to make choosers better off as judged by themselves. This suggests that our lodestar for interventions is people's own judgments taken as a plausible if imperfect way 
to test the question whether nudges are making people's lives better. This claim has theoretical roots. It's connected with one of the great texts on freedom, that is John Stuart Mill's book on liberty. And Mill, a utilitarian, not a Kantian, urged that the reason for freedom of choice is that the chooser is the one most interested in his own well-being, and the ordinary man or woman has means of knowledge immeasurably surpassing those that can be possessed by no one else. There's no one else who can know what the chooser knows. When society seeks to overrule the individual's judgment, it does so on the basis of general presumptions, which may be altogether wrong, and even if right, are as likely as not to be misapplied to individual cases. If the goal is to ensure that people's lives go well, Mill insists the best solution is for public officials to allow people to find their own path. Okay, that's a summary of Mill, but I hope you can see that it's already the beginning of an objection to Mill. As the GPS example suggests, people don't know how to find their own path, often. Many forms of choice ar architecture are exactly about that, helping people to better pathfinding. Okay, I've suggested that we should understand the notion of navigability very large, not just about roads and buildings. For poor people and many people in poor nations, navigability is a pervasive problem. Consider these words from MIT economist Esther Duflo. We tend to be patronizing about the poor in a very specific sense, which is that we tend to think, why don't they take more responsibility for their lives? And I think this is a universal question asked in Scandinavian countries as well as in South America and China and Japan and Canada and the United States. Why don't they take more responsibility for their lives? And what we are forgetting, DeFlo continues, is that the richer you are, the less responsibility you need to take for your own life because everything is taken care for you. And the poorer you are, the more you have to be responsible for everything about your life. Stop berating people for not being responsible and start to think of ways instead of providing the poor with the luxury the rest of us have, which is that a lot of decisions are taken for us. And now here's the crucial claim. If we do nothing, we are on the right track. For most of the poor, if they do nothing, they are on the wrong track. That's a problem for Mill's claims about liberty, suggesting it's too simple. In my terms here, the problem is that they have to find the right track to identify the right doctor, to get help in taking care of their children, to find clean water, to find the right job. All over the world, efforts to increase navigability in the large sense can make all the difference. Good airports, like the airport here, are easily navigated. So are good hotels and good cities and good websites, and including good hotel showers. Have you had the experience of having a difficult to navigate shower in a hotel? <laughs> okay. We might think of efforts to increase navigability, and you might be asking, have I published any articles on hard to navigate hotel showers? The answer is yes. <laughs> um, they're short articles. There are only two of them. <laughs> 
We might think of efforts to increase navigability as a form of means paternalism. What they do is to respect people's ends and in that respect follow Mill. They don't quarrel with people's judgments about the right destination, but they help people find the path that will get people there. Many interventions not understood as literal navigation have exactly this goal. The stakes can be very high. In recent years, a great deal of attention has been focused on the idea of happiness, which we can take for present purposes as a surrogate for well-being. In many nations, unhappiness is a product of unemployment. In many others, it is a product of mental illness. Increases in navigability can ensure that those who suffer from mental illness or unemployment can get help. With such approaches, freedom is hardly compromised, it's increased, and with such approaches, welfare grows as well. What I'm suggesting is that the liberal political tradition in prizing freedom of choice, as for present purposes I am fully embracing that idea, has placed too little emphasis on the pervasive challenge of navigability. Let's consider three stylized examples to specify the claim. There's a person, let's call him Luke. He has heart disease and he needs to take various medications. He wants to do that, but he sometimes forgets. His doctor sends him text, mess text messages periodically. As a result, he's taking the medications regularly. He's very glad to receive those messages. Meredith has a mild weight problem. She's aware of that fact, and while she doesn't really suffer from a self-control problem, and she doesn't want to stop eating the food she most likes, she does want to lose weight. Because of a new law, the restaurants in her city have clear calorie labels informing her of the caloric content of options. As a result, she's more often choosing low-calorie offerings, which she would not do if she were not informed. She's losing weight, She's very glad to see those calorie labels. Our third and final character is named Rita, after the world historical Danish television show, Rita. And while this is not an episode of the show, how many of you know the show, Rita? Okay, the rest of you have an assignment for tonight. <laughs> Watch all episodes of Rita. Rita, in this version of the story, teaches at a school which has long offered its employees an option which is to sign up for a retirement plan. Rita thinks that's a great idea, but if you know her character at all, you will know that she has not gotten around to it. I did check this, by the way, with the author of the Rita television show, and he confirmed that what I'm about to say is realistic. She's somewhat embarrassed that she hasn't signed up. Last year, the school switched to an automatic enrollment plan by which employees are automatically defaulted into the plan. Rita doesn't opt out. She's very glad that she's been automatically enrolled. In all of these cases, the relevant intervention, relevant intervention increases navigability. Choosers have a goal or an assortment of goals, and the new choice architecture makes it easier for them to achieve their goal. Insofar as we understand the as-judged-by-themselves criterion in the same family as John Stuart Mill's, by reference to people's preferences and values, that criterion would be met. Okay, we can easily imagine 
choice architecture, a variation on these cases in which interventions failed this criterion because they made life worse. Here's a term coming from my co-author Richard Thaler that captures the intervention. Let's call it sludge. And sludge makes less, life less navigable. Unfortunately, and sometimes tragically, sludge is all around us. Sludge reduces freedom in the sense that it makes it harder for people to get to their preferred destination. Let's go further and assert that in every nation on the planet, sludge is a major obstacle to freedom, not just welfare, freedom. So much on navigability in its simplest sense. Now let's discuss self-control. Philosophers, psychologists, lawyers, uh, authors of literary texts, and many others have long been concerned with a variety of problems that refer to weakness of the will or acrasia, which refers to the human susceptibility to temptation. Too much food, too much drink, too little concern for the future. Economists and psychologists speak of present bias, maybe better termed now bias, which means that time is like a map in which we see today and tomorrow in huge bright lights, and next year and next decade is in a faded, distant place, like a country that you can see on a map very indistinctly because it's so far away. Uh, Tali Sharet and others have emphasized unrealistic optimism, which may lead people to injure their long-term selves. They also refer, less than charmingly, to system one and system two, where system one is our automatic system, focused on today and tomorrow, and system two is the deliberative system capable of taking the long term. I have a nine-year-old son. I think it's Samantha's son also. We, have, we, have, we share. We have a nine-year-old son together. Aren't you happy for us? OK, his name is Declan, and he loves toys. Whenever we pass a toy store, he wants to stop. One day, I explained to him, as any good father would, the difference between system one and system two. And I explained to him that while his system one wants toys, his automatic intuitive system wants toys, his system two is well aware that he has no need for more toys. He has plenty of toys. He understood the point, and for a while, the categorization seemed to help. But after a little while, he asked me, Daddy, do I even have a system two? I wasn't quick enough to uh, notice that the very fact that he could ask the question suggested the answer was yes, but the fact that he was puzzled by the answer suggested that a yes answer would be much too simple. Okay, self-control problems raise a lot of challenges. One question is whether those who indulge themselves today or this month really suffer from a self-control mantra, a control problem, or instead have a rational mantra. Enjoy life now. This is not a rehearsal. Another question is whether 
purported solutions to self-control problems will make people's lives better rather than worse. Some cures are worse than the disease. Here are some haunting, I think, words, ambivalent haunting words from Byatt's heroine in the novel Possession. The heroine's name is Charlotte Lamott, and she's writing a letter from far away to her dying lover, Randolph Ashe, whom she hasn't seen in decades. She, do, she won't ever see him again. She doesn't know if the letter's ever going to arrive. And this is she, what she writes essentially from the wilderness. I would rather have lived alone, if you would, have the truth. But since that might not be, and is granted to almost no one, I thank God for you. If there must be a dragon, I thank God that he was you. Readers of Genesis have long pondered whether the choices of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden reflect a fatal inability to resist temptation, that's the conventional view, or something altogether different, such as an exercise of God-given autonomy or an honorable desire for knowledge and in a crucial sense for freedom. Was the serpent only or altogether a villain? Was he a villain at all? The conventional view has triumphed in most circles, but the appeal of the alternative view, the inescapable appeal of the alternative view, helps account for the enduring power of Genesis. Notwithstanding Lamott's ambivalence, I thank God that he was you, and the debates over Genesis, no one should doubt that before and after the fact, some interventions help people overcome self-control problems, even if they preserve freedom of choice. And here's the point I want to underline, that solutions to self-control problems are simultaneously solutions to navigability problems. So while there's a distinction between the two categories, as I'm understanding self-control problems here, they are problems of navigation that fit people who are struggling with self-control problems face, whether the problem is alcoholism, gambling, uh, cigarettes, uh, some behavior which is causing problems. Example, Ted, let's call him Ted, simple name, smoke cigarettes, he wishes that he had not started, but he's been unable to quit. His government recently imposed a new requirement, which is that cigarette packages have to be accompanied with graphic images showing people with serious health problems, including cancer. Ted, as it happens, is deeply affected by those images. He cannot bear to see them. He quits smoking, and he's glad. Joan is a student at a large university. This one, as it happens, she, and I'm sorry to tell the administrators here, but she drinks a lot of alcohol. She enjoys it, but not that much, and she's worried that her drinking is impairing her performance and her health. She says that she'd like to scale back, but for reasons she does not entirely understand, she's failed. Her university, this university, recently embarked on an educational campaign to reduce drinking in which it accurately notes that four out of five students here drink very rarely. Is that true or is this very hypothetical? <laughs> it's true, I'm getting nods, I'm getting unanimous nods. Informed of the social norm, Joan finally resolves to cut back on her drinking. She succeeds and she's glad. 
Ted and Joan can be seen as planners with preferences about their preferences and doers with first order preferences. The intervention helps to strengthen the hand of the planner. Insofar as Ted and Joan welcome the relevant interventions and do so after as well as before the fact, freedom is promoted and welfare is promoted as well. We have to underline the fact that when outsiders contend that choosers suffer from a self-control problem, they had better be humble. Any outsider faces, and this is a bow in the direction of Mill, suffer an epistemic problem. Choosers might not, in fact, be adversely affected by present bias. They might love what they are doing, even if it harms their future self, and they might be rational or rational enough in the trade-off they make between now and later. Consider a delicious meal, a wild night, two weeks off, or incautious behavior or any of any kind. Life is not a rehearsals, and planners need to do. The only point is that in important cases, self-control problems are serious and real, and choosers will acknowledge that fact. Okay, to complicate this a little bit, Hayek's great criticism of uh, socialist-style planning is that planners can never know what markets know. So if you're trying to set the price for oranges or for soda, and you are living in nation's capital, you won't know the sorts of things that people know when they make choices what to buy. Hayek said there's an epistemic, a knowledge problem that the planner faces. What I'm underlining here is that either an outsider or a planner in your own mind also suffers from a knowledge problem. You know less about the situation than the person at the point of choice does about actually what's important then. Now, this, the person at the point of choice might be making a mistake because of temptation or an insufficient focus on the long term, but I'm trying to give a, uh, a measure of respect for the chooser at the time who knows something the person in advance does not know. Even with that point, solutions to self-control problems need a GPS device, and so involve navigability. Interventions lead them where they want to go, at least on reflection. They promote, in that sense, freedom. For choosers who face self-control problems, the underlying challenge is often very serious and sometimes searing. It's not the same as in the cases of someone who's trying to figure out you know, how to get from one place to another in the literal sense. And recall Lamotte's words to her dying lover, her system one did not regret what happened, and sometimes system one rules the soul. There are much harder cases. In some of them, people aren't clear what their preferences are. Perhaps they don't know what they are. We're speaking here of preferences that are an artifact of the choice architecture. This is my third claim. We're not talking about navigability, and we're not talking any longer about self-control. The only way to get a handle on the problem, I think, is to give some examples. George cares about the environment. 
He also cares about money. He currently gets his electricity from coal. He knows that coal is not exactly good for the environment, but it's cheap. And he doesn't bother to switch to solar, which would be slightly more expensive. He's really happy with the current situation. Last month, his government imposed a new rule for electricity providers. People will receive energy from solar and pay a slight premium unless they choose to switch. George doesn't bother to switch. He says he likes the current situation of automatic enrollment. He approves of the new policy, and he improves, approves of his own enrollment. Case two, Mary. Mary is automatically enrolled in what is called a bronze healthcare plan. It's less expensive than silver and gold, doesn't cost as much, but it's also less comprehensive in its coverage, and it has a higher deductible. So it's a, more, it's a less expensive plan, it's a less good plan. Mary prefers bronze, and she has no interest in switching. She's content. In a parallel world, I'm going to say more in a moment about parallel worlds, but in a parallel world, a lot like our own but not quite identical, Mary was automatically enrolled in a gold healthcare plan. It's more expensive than silver and bronze, but it also has a lower deductible and more comprehensive coverage. Mary, in this world, prefers gold and has no interest in switching. Thomas has a serious illness. Let's make it not that serious. He has kidney. His kidney hurts, but it's not that bad. This is not a sad story. Don't feel so sorry for Thomas. But his kidney hurts and needs the attention. The question is whether he should have an operation which is accompanied by potential benefits and potential risks. Thomas reads about the operation online, and he's not sure whether he should go ahead with it. His doctor tells him to have the operation, emphasizing how much he has to lose if he doesn't. He decides to follow the advice. In a parallel world, a world like our own but not quite identical, Thomas's doctor says, don't have the operation, emphasizing how much he has to lose if he does. He decides to follow the advice and is very glad he did. Okay, I promised you a note on the concept of parallel worlds. Science fiction, likes to write, science fiction writers like to write about them, showing that with a little twist or a small alteration, our cities, our lives, our nations, our entire, our entire world might be very different. That's a claim about this contingency of where we are. Some words from possession. There are things that happen and leave no discernible trace. They are not spoken or written of, though it would be very wrong to say that subsequent events go on indifferently, all the same, as if such things had never been. Parallel worlds are intriguing for many reasons, and the very idea is, I think, deep, suggesting, and this is one reason for the depth, that we, you and I, everyone in this room, might have been or be quite happy in multiple worlds, even if we are quite happy in our own. The problem here is that the criterion with which I started are people off as judged by themselves, which works for navigability and usually works for self-control, it's not working anymore. 
And the reason it's not working anymore is it's indeterminate. There are multiple outcomes, as in the cases of my made-up characters, there are multiple outcomes with which people are happy. History is only run once, but some forms of choice architecture just create parallel worlds. In the cases of Mary and Thomas, they appear not to have an antecedent preference. What they prefer is an artifact of the default rule, in the case of Mary and healthcare plans, or the doctor's framing in the case of Thomas. George's case involving green energy is less clear because it seems like he has an antecedent preference in favor of green energy. But once the default rule is switched, he's completely happy with solar energy, which suggests that his preference is a product of the default rule. And if it's a product of the default rule, we can't choose the default rule by thinking what is his preference. In other words, the situations on which folk I'm focusing now are those in which what people like is a product of society's architecture. Their preferences and values are constructed by it. After being affected, they will be happy and maybe grateful. One reason might be learning. They learn the new situation is fine. Another reason is the reduction of cognitive dissonance. People might reduce dissonance in a way that makes them glad with the new status quo, whatever it is. And I hope you can now see the problem. It's hard to see the as judged by themselves criterion or anything in Mill's framework as adequate because by, by hypothesis, people's choices and their satisfaction will lead them in more than one direction. Okay, the most extreme cases here involve what have been called big decisions or transformative experiences in which people's identity and their preferences and values are deeply at stake. For example, people might decide to get married, to have children, to change occupations, to change cities, and these might turn out uh, fundamentally to change who they are. That's not the case of electricity and savings and healthcare. That's a much larger uh, systematic shift in who people are, and we've all experienced that, something like that, yes? Words from possession, and this is from um, from Randolph Ashe, the uh, male lover in the tale. This is where I have been always coming to since my time began. And when I go away from here, this will be the midpoint to which everything ran before and from, from which everything will now run. But now, my love, we are now, and those other times are running elsewhere. In both extreme and less extreme cases, application of the as judged by themselves criterion is much less simple because people's preferences are a product of the intervention. The challenge is that however Mary and Thomas and all of us are intervened on or choice architected, we will in circumstances agree that we are better off. What to do? That's the hardest question I'm looking at. In my view, there's no escaping some kind of analysis of human well-being between the multiple possible worlds. We need to ask what kind of approach makes people's lives go better. Now, the question is, how do we do that? 
Let me suggest there are two possible approaches. Let's call the first the humble approach and the other the arrogant approach. But I don't mean to suggest the humble approach, for reasons we'll explore, enjoys an easy victory. The humble approach has a, a slogan, which is follow the right choosers. Follow the right choosers. On that approach, we are supposed to ask about people, if there are any, who are informed and not affected by the intervention. So if there's a class of people who have information and who go a specific way, regardless of what the choice architecture is, follow them. They are our lodestar. On this approach, choice architects, those who design the choice architecture, would not attempt to decide what choices are on their own. They would attempt to follow the right choosers. That's the sense in which they are humble. These people, the humble people, are followers of John Stuart Mill, emphasizing his commitment to respecting people's choices about what would promote their welfare. To get more concrete, this is a little abstract I know, here's some specifics. Imagine a large population of choosers where a subset of people choose the same healthcare plan no matter what the choice architecture looks like. They choose the bronze plan. They're well informed and that's what they choose, whatever the choice architecture looks like. In terms of what they care about, let's stipulate, they're not different in, elevant, in any relevant way from the people who are subject to the choice architecture. It's a group of people who go one way with one choice architecture, another way with another choice architecture. Those people were setting to one side and were saying they're a group of people who always choose silver. And those are people who are not different in any way from the people who are affected by the intervention. The idea is follow the right choosers. Or consider this one, in a, and this is not uh, made up, this is based on real data. In a large community of choosers, some shoppers choose particular kinds of bread wherever the bread is placed. It doesn't matter if it's visible or hidden, they choose brand, the particular brand. They are well informed. They happen to like those kinds of bread. In terms of what they care about, they are not different from other people in their community. The other people who are highly susceptible to the intervention are, should be helped through a choice architecture that insists they get the choices that inform people who are like them make. If you're with me, this suggests a way out of our dilemma the dilemma of what to do when people's choices are an artifact of the choice architecture. Follow the judgment of the choosers who are informed and consistent. The reason is they are in a terrific position to know what's best. Inconsistent choosers, or those who are susceptible to being nudged, should take their guidance from consistent choosers who are not susceptible to being nudged. On this basis, the choice architects are being humble and modest they're not acting on the basis of their own assessments, but the assessments of the choosers they have reason to trust. Looking at uh, you all, including some of my best friends in the room, it's clear that some of you are not persuaded by this route out of the dilemma. 
So shall we talk about a second possibility and see if you like it better? This is the one I've called arrogant. But I mean it's an honorable route. The other idea is to focus directly on people's well-being and to make well-being our lodestar. For purposes of exposition, we can associate this approach, the arrogant approach, with Jeremy Bentham rather than the humble approach with John Stuart Mill. On Bentham's approach, the question is, which approach really does increase people's well-being properly defined? That's the question, full stop. That approach imposes more serious burdens on choice architects. They have to ask and answer the well-being question rather than to identify and track the behavior of informed choosers. They have to solve some hard questions about what makes people's lives go better. In the case of transformative experiences, big decisions, what life course you should take, who you should marry, where you should live, whether you should have children, what your job you should be, the well-being question is especially challenging. But I'm suggesting it is the right question. And notice here we are preserving freedom of choice no matter what we are doing, uh, but we are designing an architecture which may shift freedom of choice's exercise in one or another direction. Okay, so that's another possibility. Think about well-being. And you can think about the person who's thinking about well-being as a government, a employer, a bank, a friend, a spouse. How should we choose between the humble and the arrogant approach? The ultimate criterion has to be Bentham's, which is to say that human well-being is ultimately what matters. But that doesn't at all mean that the Benthamite approach enjoys an easy victory. And here's kind of the analytic heart of what I'm trying to urge. Suppose that we think that informed, consistent choosers know what they are doing. Suppose we insist that because they are informed and consistent, we can really trust them. Suppose, finally, the choice architects trying to decide the well-being question would make plenty of mistakes. Maybe they don't know enough. Maybe their motivations are suspect. On those assumptions, we would do well to follow Mill. In some contexts, those assumptions are the right ones, but not in all contexts. Choosers might be informed and inconsistent, but they might suffer from unrealistic optimism or some sort of bias. Their own choices might not promote their well-being. Those who are involved in choice architecture might be trustworthy or at least trustworthy enough. If so, they should not follow the choices of informed, consistent choosers. By hypothesis, they know better. Knowledge of the facts is enough. The cases I gave involving healthcare choices choices uh, that affect medical care may be examples. Some cases are a lot harder, especially in, if they involve large issues about people's identity and character. Okay, I haven't said a word about coercion. I've been operating within the framework of freedom of choice preservation, but it must be acknowledged that in some cases, contra mill, freedom of choice will not preserve people's well-being because suffering from a lack of information or a behavioral bias, they will do things that will create
terrible trouble for themselves. I'm going to give a less than inflammatory example to keep uh, system one quiet. Remember system one? That's the intuitive automatic system. We're going to give a system two example to, to make the analysis a little clearer. It's well known that when people buy refrigerators and microwave ovens and automobiles, at least some percentage of the purchasers focus on, is the car beautiful? Is it powerful? Is it fast? Is the refrigerator small? Is it pretty? Does it make food cold? What they don't focus on enough is how much is it going to cost to run the automobile or to run the refrigerator over the period of ownership. This is called the energy paradox by which consumers do not fully take account of even the discounted cost of operation of the thing that they are purchasing. It's a problem. It suggests that consumers are harming their own welfare. They are um, suffering from what we might describe as an, an intrapersonal collective action problem. Not interpersonal, intrapersonal. Now here's the secret for you. In Europe and the United States, it's secret not in the sense that it's hidden or classified. I'm not going to tell you anything classified. But in the sense that it's not widely known. That is, the environmental regulations issued by the European Union and the United States and Canada that involve refrigerators and microwave ovens and automobiles are extremely hard to defend by reference to the environmental benefits that they confer. They do confer significant environmental benefits, but the economic costs they impose on those products are significantly higher than the environmental benefits. The environmental benefits are large, they're lower than the economic costs. Why might you ask yourself, are countries like Canada and the United States, the nations of Europe, nonetheless embarking on these regulations? The reason is consumers are saving a lot of money. Now, according to standard theory, including the theory that comes from John Stuart Mill, that's illegitimate because consumers know what they are buying. There's no harm to others. We're not talking about environmental harms. We're talking about harms to self, expenses to them. And consumers are not thinking hard enough. All these governments are implicitly asserting they are not considering the harm to themselves, thus violating Mill's principle of freedom. And that's what the numbers make very, very clear. The only justification that can be given for the regulations I'm now describing says that people at the time of purchase are not adequately considering the costs they are imposing on their future selves, that this isn't adequately on their, their view screen, that they are effectively ignoring the welfare of their future self. It's not a self-control problem, it's a problem of future blindness of some kind. Now the case, it's a system two case. We can think of system one cases involving soda taxes and cigarette regulation and other kinds of interventions. The only point is if human well-being is our ultimate guide, there are cases in which Mill has missed something important, which is either an absence of information or a kind of behavioral bias, which will in the end justify coercion. 
adoption of that justification is, in some circumstances, justified, reluctantly, but still. Final words. Countless interventions, good ones, in the local airport and on the street, increase navigability. Some of them increase navigability writ very large in the sense that they enable people to get where they want to go and therefore enable them to engage in actions that fit with their preferences and values. All over the world, if we see freedom as a navigability problem, I think, we will be able to make progress both in the definition of what freedom entails and also progress in solving acute problems that um, are causing illness, suffering, and premature death. Many other interventions helping to overcome self-controlled problems are warmly welcomed by choosers and so are consistent with the insistence on measuring interventions by seeing if they promote people's well-being as measured by themselves. Numerous people acknowledge that they suffer from self-control problems. The reason the self-control question is more difficult is first that the outsider might mistake for a self-control problem an, insistent, an insistence that now greatly matters, and also the fact that a planner before the point of decision will lack information that a chooser at that crucial moment will have. And as if this seems abstract, think about your favorite night in the last two years, and it will probably seem more concrete. If it doesn't, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> when people lack antecedent preferences or values, or when their preference and values are not firm, and that's frequently true, an intervention, it can come from a university or an employer or a seller of a drink, when an intervention constructs or alters those preferences, the as-judged-by-themselves standards is much harder to operationalize. And this is my kind of uh, mea culpa with respect to previous writings in which I hadn't seen this. The reason is the as-judged-by-themselves standard doesn't lead to a single solution. It leads to multiple solutions. To resolve the tough questions, it makes sense either to see what informed, consistent choosers do or to make the most direct inquiries into human well-being. The modest approach is best unless choosers suffer from some kind of behavioral bias, such as unrealistic optimism. And if choice architects can't be trusted, then we'd better follow the best choosers. The direct inquiry into well-being is best if choosers do suffer from a behavioral bias and if choice architects can be trusted. And my hunch is if we look at where private and public institutions of the most impressive kind have produced good choice architecture, they've either deferred to the informed, consistent choosers or they've made a really smart judgment about what most promotes people's well-being. For the future, and here's a plea, we need more careful consideration of the disparate ingredients of human well-being, emphatically including dignity, 
informed by evidence as well as by theory. We need all of the fields recognized by the Holberg Prize, the arts and the humanities, social science, law, and theology. Here are the greatest words ever written, I think, by the greatest poet, with the possible exception of Shakespeare, in the English language, written by John Milton, a failed writer at the time he wrote Paradise Lost, and he's writing these words with help. He's per completely blind, and he's writing what he had hoped for decades he would be capable of writing, which is something good and enduring. Uh, in some sort of uh, fever, blind, he wrote Paradise Lost, a tale of freedom, writing about Adam and Eve, who have succumbed to temptation and lost everything, and been expelled by God from the Garden of Eden. Milton wrote, some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow, through Eden took their solitary way. Recall, and these are my last words, the passage from Byatt's possession, I hope seen in a somewhat different light now. Also a tale of freedom, of a very fortunate fall, and of a uniquely human kind of joy. In the morning, the whole world had a strange new smell. It was the smell of the aftermath, a green smell, a smell of shredded leaves and oozing resin, of crushed wood and splashed sap, a tart smell, which bore some relation to the smell of bitten apples. It was the smell of death and destruction, and it smelled fresh and lively and hopeful.